Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today, a lot of people call the Stonewall Riots, which started on June 28, 1969, the beginning of the LGBT rights movement in the United States. And is as is really often the case, kind of an oversimplification. The Stonewall Uprising was more like the event that made people who were not already fighting for LGBT rights aware that there was a fight going on at all. In reality, gay rights organizations, which at that point were called homophile organizations, had been actively working toward gay rights and legal protections for well over a decade before Stonewall. Some of the most well-known examples are the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Belitis, which were focused on the rights of gay men and lesbians, respectively. And there were also other violent uprisings in the years before Stonewall. And the names of these uprisings are not nearly as well known as Stonewall is today. One of those was a riot at Jean Compton's Cafeteria in 1966, in which the restaurant's patrons, who were predominantly gay men, drag queens, and transgender women, fought back against police. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And I do need to give a couple of notes before we start. Uh, the concept of gender identity and the language that we use to talk about it has really evolved a lot since the time that we are talking about the word transgender wasn't coined until 1979 after this story was long over. And today it's an umbrella term that describes a range of ways in which a person's gender identity or expression doesn't match up with the sex that they were assigned when they were born. So our use of this term in this episode is a little bit anachronistic, but it's how many, but definitely not all, of the people in this story went on to identify later in their lives after that word had come into common usage. Also, because three distinctly different groups of people were all involved in this event, and those were cross-dressers, transgender women, and gay men, we're not going to try to specifically name every one of those every single time that it might be relevant, because that becomes extremely wordy and convoluted. Uh, we do want to make clear, though, that although there can be some overlap within these groups, such as gay men who cross-dress or transgender people who also who are also gay, as examples, these terms have specific meanings, and they refer to specific traits and behaviors. So transgender refers to gender identity, cross-dressing refers to a person's clothing, and gay refers to a person's physical or emotional attractions to other people. Uh, this episode also does include some parts that parents and teachers might want to avoid for younger listeners, uh, particularly some discussion that's related to sex and sex work. So those are our notes before we start. The Compton's Cafeteria Riot was definitely a product of its time and place. So we have to do some stage setting on this one. In the mid to late 19th century, many cities around the United States started passing laws to make it illegal for people to cross-dress. At this point, homosexual acts were already illegal in most places, so it's not entirely clear exactly what sparked this need to regulate this type of dress at this particular time. One theory is that as people moved into cities and found communities of like-minded people and began to more outwardly and publicly practice cross-dressing, the majority found this behavior quite threatening. Regardless of what the precise reasons were, Columbus, Ohio, passed such a law in 1848. Chicago, Illinois did in 1851, and more cities followed, including San Francisco, California in 1863. These laws were generally written to forbid all cross-dressing, but in practice, 
enforcement was a lot more focused on people with a masculine appearance or a physically male body who were wearing women's clothing. It also means that these laws were applied to both straight and gay people who cross-dressed and to transgender people whose dress was typical for their gender identity. Magnus Hirschfeld coined the word transvestite in 1910. And today, most of us think of this in terms of cross-dressing, but at the time, it applied to a much broader range of gender identities and not just to clothing. In 1919, Hirschfeld would go on to found the Institute for Sexual Science in Berlin, which was dedicated to studying sex and gender. Through his work and the work of others around the same time, people gradually developed a vocabulary to describe and talk about the nuances of sexual orientation and gender identity. During World War II, members of the United States military who were found to be in violation of various standards forbidding homosexual behavior were given what was colloquially known as a blue discharge. For those who were serving in the Pacific, this usually meant that they were processed out of the military in San Francisco. This pattern was definitely not unique to San Francisco or to World War II. It happened in other port cities and other wars as well. But the LGBT population of San Francisco grew tremendously during the war years as people who had been discharged because of their sexual orientation were processed out of the army there and then stayed in that area. A number of researchers also started studying gender and sex during the 1940s and 1950s, including famously Alfred Kinsey at the Kinsey Institute for Sex, Gender and Reproduction, and also Carl Bowman at the Langley Porter Psychiatric Clinic at the University of California, San Francisco. And while some of this research definitely did not follow today's ethical standards, it did begin to give at least some doctors a better idea of how to work with lesbian, gay, and transgender patients. In 1952, Christine Jorgensen became a household name after having had a series of surgeries in Copenhagen, which were widely described in the press as a sex change. Today, that's really not the term that we would use to talk about these procedures. We would call them uh, sex reassignment surgeries, or gender confirmation surgeries. Although these procedures had been available in Europe for a while, they were really pretty widely unknown in the United States before this point. Jorgensen became an instant celebrity, and her story gave a lot of transgender people hope that their bodies could be made to match their gender ide- identity. I want to be very clear, though. Not every transgender person chooses to or is able to have surgery. But at this point in history, Jorgensen's story and the subsequent media coverage she received were earth shattering for a lot of transgender people. It raised a lot of awareness on the subject. And she received letters from all over from people who basically thanked her for helping them understand their own identity and be able to talk about it with other people. Later in the 1950s, the word transsexual came into use to describe people who wanted to change or had changed their physical body from the sex that they were assigned at birth. A number of mass market novels that related to ideas of cross-dressing and gender identity were published. And in 1960, Virginia Prince launched Transvestia, which was the first periodical in the U.S. that was intended for a transgender market. Subscribers to the magazine also formed the first known organization for transgender people in the U.S. not long after this. In 1966, Dr. Harry Benjamin published The Transsexual Phenomenon, which described patients he had been working with, creating a course of treatment to help them transition from the sex they had been assigned at birth to the gender that they felt themselves intrinsically to be. 
And all of this brings us to what happened at Compton's cafeteria in 1966. Although California had repealed its law against cross-dressing in 1962, people were still being arrested for it. Homosexuality was also illegal. San Francisco itself had a growing LGBT population, thanks in part to the military discharges during World War II that we discussed. And awareness of transgender and gay rights issues was starting to grow, thanks to the work of various social movement organizations. There were also high-profile stories like Christine Jorgensen's and the work of doctors and psychologists such as Dr. Harry Benjamin. So all of these things really came together uh, and led to what has become known as the Compton's Cafeteria Riot. And we're going to talk about this riot specifically after a brief word from a sponsor. So to get to specifically uh, the neighborhood where Compton's Cafeteria was located and what happened there, In 1966, San Francisco's Tenderloin District was home to many of the city's drag queens, transgender people, gay men, and others who just didn't fit into conventional ideas of gender expression and sexual orientation. And it wasn't a particularly nice place to live. Uh, This was a red light district, run down, seedy, with uh, hotels that advertised transient rooms. There were high crime rates in a thriving and not particularly safe industry of vice. Often the police force in the Tenderloin seemed more interested in taking advantage of the situation than actually helping to protect the community. And a lot of the people who were living in the Tenderloin just didn't have other options. As people were turned away from jobs and housing in cleaner, safer parts of the city, the Tenderloin effectively became a gay ghetto. Police would even direct gay and transgender people who were arrested in other parts of town to the Tenderloin, where they might actually be able to find a place to live. And some of its residents were unable to find work due to their sexual orientation or gender expression. And as a result, they turned to sex work as a last resort. And for many, many reasons, this was inherently dangerous. In addition to the risks of sexually transmitted disease or being arrested or jailed, the people soliciting prostitutes in the Tenderloin weren't necessarily looking for someone whose outward appearance when clothed did not match up with their physical sex. Transgender sex workers consequently became the targets of violence and harassment. This also led to gay and transgender people in the Tenderloin being arrested on suspicion of prostitution, regardless of whether they were prostitutes or whether they were engaged in any activity that could even resemble prostitution at the time. And being arrested tended to be a whole lot worse for gay men and transgender people than for everyone else. People who were physically male but were dressed in women's clothing would be sent to the men's jail, where they were often at risk for being assaulted, raped, or murdered because of how they behaved and how they were dressed. Conditions were bad enough that in 1965, Tenderloin residents launched a grassroots campaign to try to improve the neighborhood and the economic conditions there. And their goals were to bring in much-needed social services and to qualify for anti-poverty funding. That last part was challenging because many anti-poverty programs were targeted towards racial and ethnic minorities. But the population of the Tenderloin District was predominantly white. There were gay activists, neighborhood organizers, and ministers at the forefront of this effort. And it also spawned a youth organization for gay and transgender street kids, which was known as Vanguard. Vanguard held its meetings at Gene Compton's Cafeteria, which was a popular gathering place for the gay community, drag queens, and transgender people in the Tenderloin. It was a 24-hour cafeteria that was part of a local restaurant chain. 
It sat at the corner of Turk and Taylor Streets, and it was next to a gay bathhouse and down the street from a Woolworths. Also, nearby were a bar and the airport bus terminal that many trans people and drag queens used to change their clothes. So it was basically a convenient, centralized, and relatively safe location for people to congregate 24 hours a day. As one of the patrons who was interviewed in the documentary Screaming Queens, the riot at Compton's cafeteria, quote, it was beautiful because it was clean. As was the case for the Tenderloin in general, many of the regulars at Compton's cafeteria were there because they had nowhere else to go. Other restaurants, clubs, and hotels wouldn't serve them because of their sexual orientation, their gender expression, or their dress. But Compton's would let them in. It was a place where people routinely went to make sure their friends knew that they were still alive. But the management at the cafeteria did not really like the fact that it had become basically a hangout for this particular crowd. Staff started trying to discourage the ongoing hanging out by implementing a service charge to make up for the fact that people were taking up table space but not buying food. However, they tended to charge this service charge kind of selectively. The people who saw it on their bills were mostly the most obvious uh, gay and transgender people who frequented the establishment. In the summer of 1966, management and staff at the restaurant started calling the police to report people who were spending too much time loitering and not enough time eating or spending money. Regulars responded by picketing, and this was an effort that was led by the group Vanguard in July of 1966. By this point, most of the nighttime regulars at the cafeteria were really used to being hassled by police. Police activity in general had really been increasing because of the number of military recruits that were passing through San Francisco on the way to Vietnam. But the cafeteria had become a safe spot where people felt like they didn't need to worry about being targeted for what they were wearing, where they were standing, being too loud, being mistaken for a sex worker, or basically for any reason that somebody felt like hassling them. So tensions really grew as police became more and more present inside the restaurant. The exact date of the riot at the cafeteria is not known today. The newspapers didn't cover this event, and no police reports from the evening have survived until today. Although there are definitely enough eyewitnesses uh, and their eyewitness reports to corroborate that this did happen. And we know that it happened in August of 1966. The restaurant that night was packed. Staff at the cafeteria decided to call the police to have some of the patrons who were there removed. And an officer put his hand on somebody from the crowd. This person is most frequently described as a drag queen. And that person threw a cup of coffee into the police officer's face. As more people began throwing glasses, silverware, and plates, the police left the cafeteria to call for backup. While they were gone, the crowd broke windows and turned over tables, and fights broke out both in and around the restaurant. The police returned and started making arrests and filling the paddy wagons. Property damage followed, including a vandalized police car and a newsstand that was burned down. So if the riot at Compton's cafeteria had taken place somewhere else or at a different time, it's entirely possible that it wouldn't have led to any kind of meaningful change for the lives of the gay and transgender people who participated in it afterward. But this was San Francisco. It was during the 1960s when a number of social movements were all concurrently striving for change on a number of different fronts. So it did actually lead to some things getting better. And we'll talk about that after a brief break for another word from a sponsor. So to get back to what happened after the riot, these grassroots efforts for change in the Tenderloin, which had started in the uh, weeks and months before the riot, grew stronger in the wake of it. 
A few months later, the Central City Anti-Poverty Office opened, and one of its goals was to improve relations between the gay and transgender communities and the police. Police Sergeant Elliot Blackstone had been named a liaison between the police force and homophile organizations, as well as the greater gay community back in 1962. This focus also expanded to include transgender people following the riot. At first, the transgender community, still at that point described as drag queens and transsexuals, since the term transgender had yet to be coined, was largely left out of this mission. But Louise Ergestras, a transgender resident of the Tenderloin District, gave Blackstone a copy of The Transsexual Phenomenon and insisted that he read it. After he did, he played a key role in shifting the police force's treatment of the transgender community. In addition to working towards implementing programs and services that helped and protected transgender people, he worked to change the attitudes of the police force. Another program that started after the riot was the Center for Special Problems, which was part of the San Francisco Public Health Department. The Center for Special Problems started a support group, and it started working toward connecting transgender people with medical care and other services that they needed. The center also started issuing identification cards for transgender people. And this sounds minor, but it was actually a huge deal. Before this, driver's licenses and other ID could only reflect a person's gender as it was assigned at their birth. So someone who had transitioned could not get an ID card that accurately reflected their identity. And this was not a perfect system. Using a Center for Special Problems ID meant that the person who carried it was publicly identified as transgender, whether he or she wanted to be or not. But it also meant that people could do things like open bank accounts and apply for jobs without trying to use what, by all appearances, looked like someone else's ID card. Although some of the social movement organizations behind these changes gradually fizzled out or split into other groups or otherwise ended, a lot of the programs themselves continued on for years until they were updated or replaced by other social services. However, many of the issues that the transgender community faced in the Tenderloin District in 1966 persisted, and they still exist today. In most of the United States, being transgender is not a protected class, so people can be fired or refused housing, medical care, or other necessary services because of their gender expression. Transgender people continue to have a vastly higher risk of suicide than the general population, as well as a much greater risk of being the victim of violent crime. In the mid-1970s, there was actually a serial killer in the Tenderloin and other uh, LGBT neighborhoods in San Francisco who killed at least 14 people, most of them trans women or drag queens, and was never apprehended. According to the 2012 Hate Violence Report from the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Projects, Transgender people are also more than three times more likely to experience police violence than the general population. The cafeteria closed in 1972. Elliot Blackstone, who was then retired from the force, was the Grand Marshal of the San Francisco Pride Parade in 2006. A plaque commemorating the riot was installed that same year. So, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, the Stonewall riots are so frequently pinpointed as like the start of the gay rights movement. And this is... One of the the violent uprisings that happened before that one, it was not actually the first. There were also a couple of similar ones. At uh, one was at Cooper's Donuts, which was a donut shop that was uh, uh, in a in a predominantly gay neighborhood and had a number of gay and transgender people as its patrons. And there was also another one that was at a bakery. 
So several uh, similarly pushing back against police kind of uh, kind of events happened in the years immediately le- leading up to Stonewall. And then Stonewall is the kind of kind of became the big name out of all of them. Yeah, even when there's any big historical event, regardless of sort of what issue or cultural or political thing it's attached to, it may be like the the touchstone and the focus of a certain um, aspect of like historical telling. But there are usually a lot of little sort of things leading up to it that maybe don't always get the light shown on them. So do you also have a little bit of listener mail for us today? I do. This is about our recent episode about time capsules, and it is from Alexa. And Alexa says, hi, ladies, longtime listener, longtime fan. Two new history podcasts a week really improve my quality of life. I'm sure I'm not the first to mention this. I'm just going to pause for a second. Alexa was the first and only person to mention this. (laughs) (laughs) Conversely to other uh, corrections we have talked about lately. So she says, I'm sure I'm not the first to mention this, but I think I heard a little crossed wires uh, situation in the time capsule episode. The first Boston time capsule was found in the old state house. Built in 1713, this building was the seat of colonial government in Massachusetts and the first state house for the state of Massachusetts. Today, the old state house is a museum. The second Paul Revere time capsule was found in the current Massachusetts state house. That state house is the current home of the Massachusetts government. It was built in 1798, is located on Boston Common, and has the big gold dome. Two different state houses, two time capsules. It's something that confuses Bostonians themselves all the time. I happen to know that the old State House Museum visitor's desk often gets calls with people asking to speak to the governor's office. It's a hoot to tell people that the governor has worked in the other State House since 1798. I only mention it to be helpful not to pick apart what I think is an incredibly well-done podcast. The old State House is a fascinating building that often gets overlooked for its more popular Freedom Trail cousins. In 1976, Queen Elizabeth II spoke from the old State House balcony. It's the site of the Boston Massacre and James Otis's argument against the writs of assistance. In 1835, William Lloyd Garrison, being chased by an angry mob, found a safe hiding place in the old State House. I could go on. Thanks so much for everything. Love what you do and how you do it. Alexia in Boston. Uh, and then she sends us a very kind note about how having grown up in Massachusetts, Louisa May Alcott was a hugely important part of her sense of self. And she, tell, she talks a little bit about uh, going to Orchard House um, and a friend of hers who this past fall got married on the grounds of Fruitlands Museum. So thank you so much, Alexa, for being literally the only person who uh, who told us about this mistake that was 100% my fault. Like, I absolutely thought that both uh, that both the time capsules were found at the same building and that that building was the old state house, which is the one with the statues on top, which rises right by where the uh, the the massacre happened. Like, I really thought that they were the same place, um, in part because the uh, the other state house um, time capsule was found during a repair. And there have just been ongoing repair projects going on at the old state house, I definitely conflated them both together. Uh, I have even literally stood outside of the old state house and said to myself, that's where both those time capsules were found. I was super duper wrong. I'm so ignorant of like Boston's layout 
and its buildings that it uh, no bell rang for me one way or the other. So no, this is me neither. <laughs> I I mean, logically, if there's an old state house, then there is also a new state house. But uh, yeah, it did not click for me at any point when when reading up on the the more details of both of those time capsules, it didn't it never clicked for me that those were they were actually talking about two different buildings. So, uh, thank you, Alexa. <laughs> That was my error. Uh, I did not find this to be nitpicky at all. And I actually loved uh, learning about all these other things from the old state house that I did not know about it. For example, I did not know that it often gets overlooked for the other stuff that's on the Freedom Trail. Um, because it seems like with the Boston Massacre site right there that people would be like, oh, let's go look at this, too. Because it really is basically at the front door. <laughs> yeah. So... Thank you, Alexa, for writing to us uh, with that correction and other cool information. If you would like to write to us about this or any other episode, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have a Spreadshirt store, MissedInHistory.Spreadshirt.com, full of t-shirts and phone cases and whatnot. Uh, if you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can put the word transgender into our search bar at our parent company's website. You will find the article, 10 Things Doctors Have Reconsidered This Century, which talks about how the medical ideas surrounding gender expression and transgender people have changed over the last century. Uh, that is at our parent company's website, HowStuffWorks.com. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and find show notes for all our episodes, which is also where we correct stuff when we get it wrong sometimes. Uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, An archive of every single episode we've ever done and other cool stuff. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.